the Yacht Rock podcast out of the main. John, how are you feeling? Riding the crest of a wave. Wonderful. Yeah. I am uh, I'm super pumped. This is uh, super excited to have our guests on this week. This is one of those um, like full circle moments. So if you remember our first episode, which was the origin stories, right. I was telling you about how I got immersed into Yacht Rock. I had been introduced to it. And then months later, I'm down in Florida and I spent a day at the beach and the pool and we're back at the room with the family, getting ready for dinner, cleaning up, taking showers. My wife decides she's going to shower first. Of course, I pour a cocktail and put on some music. Who wouldn't? Right. What do I feel like? And I'm like, oh, I remember there's this thing called Yacht Rock. That sounds like good music. So I open Pandora, fire up Yacht Rock Radio, and just let the Yacht Rocky goodness wash over me. My wife's in the other room showering, unbeknownst to me, and she's overhearing all this stuff. And each song's better than the next. And then finally, I hear my wife. She's now out of the shower. She's still in the bathroom, and she yells from the other room. She's like, what is this wonderful music? It's like the (laughs) soundtrack of my youth. Yeah. And hand to God, the song that elicited that actual uh, call from the other room was Just Remember I Love You by Firefall. Just remember I love you and it'll be That was a song where she'd finally heard enough. She's like, what is this? Yeah. So here we are years later, and now we're going to get to talk to the guys from Firefall. Yeah, their first three albums... All went gold, two of which went platinum. So we're not talking any minor players here. We're talking big time, and they're here to join us. And they have a, a broader catalog that I think a lot of people realize. So the the hits being, you know, You Are the Woman and uh, Just Remember I Love You. But we've featured Buried Treasures. They've got, you know, how many albums do they have out? And they've got a new record coming out this year. So I'm really fired up to bring bring them in. And let's do it. Well, so John, let's bring in our special guests for the yes. episode this week. We're really excited to have two of the original members of Firefall. I want to welcome Jock Bartley and Mark Andes. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So good to have you guys. Um, obviously, we want to talk, and the reason we're talking is because you have your first studio record coming out since the 90s uh, on December 11th. 2020. So if you're listening to us in the future, uh, that was December 11th, 2020, and it's out now. If you're listening to us now, then you've got something to look forward to. And we'll, we'll definitely get get to that. So, um, But I wanted to talk to uh, John real quick and remind him of our origin story. So John, our origin stories are the, the uh, being the Yacht Rock podcast. We talk about the, the time that we discovered Yacht Rock and when we realized that this was a thing and that we fell in love with it, and some of that discovery for me was re-remembering all of the Firefall catalog that I forgot that I do. Yeah. But it's interesting to actually talk to artists who lived it in the era, mm-hmm. and that's why I'm so glad to talk to, to Jock and Mark today, because I want to, if you guys could give us a sense for what it was like growing up in the era, the late 70s, early 80s, you weren't part of the West Coast geographically. I don't You're out of Miami at the time, recording in Miami. Is that right? We were a Colorado band. Mark was from Los Angeles and was a, a big LA do in spirit and, and Jojo Gunn. And he moved to Colorado and, you know, we were from Colorado and we went and recorded our first three albums in Miami at Criteria. Okay. So we're Colorado boys really, but Mark's in LA. And to clarify though, uh, uh, David Muse and Rick, both are from Florida originally, so okay, that might have been some, uh, some 
confusion. So uh, you were in spirit at the same time, like Jay Ferguson, John Locke, were they in at the same time? Okay. Yes. All right. Um, and we'll get to that later. Cause I know you do uh, a spirit tune on the new album, but we're, we're in the seventies now. And, you know, from our perspective, you know, I'm a music producer and music engineer too. So um, by the time we started to hit the seventies, it was, where the technology had gotten to a point where it had grown to where stuff could be recorded to what I call full fidelity, you know, maybe through the Motown era and stuff, it was still a bit harsh. We were dealing with limited track counts and maybe not full fidelity mixers and things. So finally we hit the seventies and from a musician standpoint, a creative standpoint, you could sort of do what you wanted to. You could start bringing in orchestras and things like that. And so you guys were recording right at that time. And so Talk through how, you know, what it was like at, at that time as that stuff was becoming new. You're getting to 24 tracks and things like that, and you could just kind of blow out your arrangements. Editing tape. How about that? Remember homemade loops to, to create the loop effect? I mean, we had yeah. uh, crazy uh, structures, you know, with, with loop, you know, tape loops and stuff. But it was it was old school. It was wonderful, man. But you're right with the, the uh, amount of, of tracks that could be recorded per song it, uh, increased exponentially. And our first Firefall record, if I'm correct, was on 16 tracks. Wow. It, it was still two two inch tape, but it was okay. 16 tracks. And by the time we got to our second record in 1977, it was up at 24 tracks. And we were talking before we ran tape about uh, we recorded our first three albums down at Criteria Studios in Miami. And I remember when we were at Criteria, the Bee Gees still recorded down the hall at Criteria. And I remember going in and seeing for the first time ever, they had three 24-track machines hooked in together. And two of them, like 40 tracks, were just vocals. But Firefall, we, we did our first one on 16, and uh, it went real quick for us. In later albums, we'd have to go back in and redo stuff and, and spend more money with our label and go into a different studio or whatever to refinish an album a little better. Mm -hmm, but our mm -hmm. first album was, was a real quick thing, and we, we knew all the songs, and we were raring to go. Well, you're, you're leading me to something I really wanted to ask about in terms of your specific lead guitar style and your approach you know there's a lot of lead guitarists that you know wait their time and then their solo time comes they get eight bars they get 16 bars and they melt your face and then they fall back you know into the background you on so many of the songs you did this thing where you were playing sort of noodling filling gaps throughout the entire tune you know and um, you know, when I record stuff now, I'll have a guitar player play through it three or four times. I'm working in digital audio. I can just go through and snip out the stuff I like, yada, yada, yada. You don't have the ability to do that. You're having to conceive of this whole thing either via punch-ins or you've got, you know, what about your process in building out? So I'm thinking of songs like um, So Long... It doesn't matter, so that's one of the 16-track tunes. Headed for a fall. You know, where you're kind of playing throughout. It's an entirely different approach. So I was really fortunate to have a famous jazz guitar player from the 40s and 50s named Johnny Smith teach me guitar from the time I was nine years old till 14. 
basically until the Beatles came out. And then for me and a lot of young guys around the, uh, the country, everything changed on, you know, uh, February 9th, 1964, when the Beatles mm. played on Ed Sullivan. Ed Sullivan yeah. But the thing is, is that playing solos is having conversation with your audience. And I learned from my mentor teacher that the vocals that with somebody singing was the main thing happening when the song was happening, but that people who played music behind them could easily play a musical line or a figure that was reminiscent of the vocal that they just heard. So what I did, and you know, this was a thing that developed for me over many a year, but particularly on So Long, which was on our second record, I was out there ready to play. Um, in the studio, I've been really fortunate to mostly be a right brain player where I'm not really thinking about what I'm going to play. I just play something. Wow. And it either works yeah. or it works or it doesn't. Yeah. But um, on so long, I was ready to go. I knew what I was going to play when my solo came in a minute or two. Um, and when I started playing, I would listen to Rick Roberts' great vocal and I would play either the same melody, a similar melody, or something in answer back to what the vocal was doing. Mm. And particularly on So Long, yeah, I played all over the whole song. I was encouraged by the producer to, uh, to do that. On a song like You Are the Woman, um, I didn't play any licks at all until my solo. And when I recorded that, just like the same thing with Mexico, um, I kind of knew what I was going to play, but just kind of played it. And it might have been the first or second take or whatever. But I mean, Mexico um, had, you know, that was a one take whole performance for three and a half minutes. And as the story goes, my hero, Eric Clapton, was in the control room watching me when I played that one take. No pressure. Oh, wow. (laughs) <laughs> and I didn't, of course, I didn't know he was there. If okay. I would have yeah. known he was there, yeah. I would have been on the floor going, ah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. but, you know, so in answer to your question, most of the time, I just trust my melodic sense. And I also am a tasty player that knows and learns from my teacher, John, uh, Johnny Smith. I learned from him that tasty playing and tasty soloing is really not what you play, but what you don't play. And it's the spaces between. And so a lot of my stuff, I was just going off of either Rick or Larry's vocal. And you're playing in such short phrases because you're feeling that, which is kind of counter to the way, um, you know, a guitar player might play. Because a guitar player doesn't have to breathe necessarily. It's not like a horn player where your phrases are forced by having to take a breath. But you're, you're still, you, you want to play something that matters, but you also have to play in short spaces. Well, when you have a long solo to play, you can play in a lot longer spaces, sure. but just going back to that having conversation with your audience kind of thing is that when we talk, we talk in sentences and we take a breath and we a new paragraph starts when we change the subject or whatever. And really, the best soloists around speak through their instrument a la talking. And, you know, I might play some really nice melody or a, a cool lick and then wait for 10 seconds, which kind of makes the next thing I play really sets it up. The space does. So, you know, I, I look at it as having conversation and, and really letting people 
feel it and understand it, not just have run-on sentences all the time. You guys probably aren't nearly as dialed into this whole Yacht Rock craze as we are as fans, but Firefall is among the um, the the pantheon of fire or of yacht rock artists that people love to reference you are the woman has the distinctive flute just remember i love you has the distinctive saxophone so it wins is something that we hear a lot of in firefall and david muse who's still with the band right yes yes it was an original member he brought all of that so did you guys consciously have this sound going into your recording thinking this is going to separate us from the other bands that are out there or was it just a factor of hey we knew david he brought something awesome to the table and let's let's work it in mark i think that we had an idea that we wanted that sound to our our uh, music david just happened to be the perfect guy a friend of rick's and like i said they're both from florida so they knew each other when they were kids and he just had he had it right i mean david really wound up being the guy that could uh create those parts and and we worked hard on our parts uh i think i think part of the reason that the first album fell together so wonderfully is because for the i don't know a a year and a half or two before that we were playing all through colorado and so we were this well rehearsed you know group that that was playing frequently so there was this uh wonderful that thing that Chuck was just saying about the conversational aspects of the solos, and you extend that to include David. Now you've got a three-way. Uh, if, you, if you take the the vo- include the vocals, you've got a three-way uh, conversation. The, the, remove the the vocals, and you're doing solos. You could have this wonderful two-way conversation. So it it just kind of evolved. But I'll tell you, I think. I think Rick might have had an idea that David would bring something special. Don't don't you think, Jocko? I I definitely do. And I have to add here that in that year and a half, we put the band together and figured out our songs and trying to find out what Firefall sounded like. We were a five-piece guitar band. And I took every solo there was. And um, we knew when we got our record deal with Atlantic Records and had a budget, and could go into the studio and make the song, uh, the, the the album and the song sound like we wanted them to. We knew we needed a keyboard player, hopefully saxophone flute. Rick said, "David Muse, I'll get him out here." He came out, and um, he, David, and I, as soloists in the band, didn't know what the magic would be like, and we didn't know when we'd go into a song sometime about. Well, should it be a sax solo or should it be a guitar solo? Or, you know, and a lot of the th- times that just happened really naturally with us playing the songs. And I remember, for instance, on Just Remember I Love You, and David is a great, great woodwinds and flute and sax player, and it's just amazing. Um, I remember being in the studio when it was time to figure out what the solos were going to do on Just Remember I Love You. And the producer said, David, go give it a shot on sax. And David went out for about a half hour or 40 minutes and was trying stuff and trying something else or whatever. And it just wasn't quite working. And then the producer looked at me and says, Jock, why don't you go try something? And I went, okay. So I went out. And again, I wasn't, I never played the solo on Just Remember I Love You before. 
I didn't know what I was going to play. I mean, I knew the chords and I knew I have a really good melodic sense. And so within a, a couple of takes, I played that what ends up being the bottom of the harmony parts. And they said, that's great. And I might have had to, you know, overdub the last line of the solo or whatever. I'm not saying it was a one take idea, but I played my part. And then the producer said, Dave, how about you go harmonize? And we figured out the harmony and he played it. And for the last 40 years, it's been a guitar sax solo that everybody knows and loves. It's magical. It is. You know, it, yeah, it really is. I don't know. They just, they fit together so well in that. That was one of the things I kind of noticed this week. I always knew that song, you know, listening as a fan, listening as a fan. But it, as we started to prep for this, and I'm listening more as a producer, or more analyzing this stuff, and I had the headphones on when I hear you in the left and the sax in the right, I'm like, this just is really cool the way it blends. Sometimes in the studio, if you've got two guitar players or a guitar and a flute or a guitar and a sax or a piano and a flute or whatever, and you want to try to do something together, you work on it and you play it together and it comes down and it's either great or it's not or whatever. But sometimes those duo parts end up starting with one of the two. Um, and, you know, for instance, when we were with Tom Dowd working on Strange Way for the third album, you know, we had Rick Roberts's great song, Strange Way, which is this moody thing that has no licks on it at all. I mean, no guitar licks, no, no, nothing. It's just the melodies and the, and the, the mood that the band created playing. Um, Tom Dowd was saying, is there any way that we can maybe speed up at the end and have a solo? And we said, okay, sure, let's try it. And we had no idea. And I remember Michael Clark, our drummer, took a while to, to kind of try to speed up in the last two or four measures or whatever. And we said, how about we make it a Latin mm -hmm. flute solo? Yep. And I remember Mark said, well, how about this? Boom, 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 boom. Yeah. And he starts playing the lick and then suddenly, bam, it was there. And that became the flute solo which is one of David Muse's main moments to shine in Firefall. And frankly, as a guy who's been in every fire, every Firefall gig in 40 years, except one or two, um, that flute solo in Strange Way get the biggest ovation and standing ovation every night we play. Yeah. And then the, the, the outro chorus, and then you just smoke those leads in between. That right there, that whole section, the end of that song, the bass work, the flute work, and then the rock solo, that is why you guys sound different than all of the other bands in in, in the uh, Yacht Rock that we call the sort of the strum rock area of Yacht Rock, whether it's the Eagles or Jackson Brown or America. The percussion, the flute, the bass work, and the, all of that is, is just so unique, and that's what you know makes you guys sound different from them. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, John. And we were aware of it. You know, I want to say something here that I know that 
98 out of 100 bands would just give their eye teeth for. When we, okay, so Rick Roberts and I, I, I was playing with Graham Parsons and Amy Lou Harris in The Fallen Angels. Rick had replaced Graham Parsons in The Flying Burrito Brothers. And um, I met Rick in New York City. We realized we both lived in Boulder, Colorado. Hey, we should get together. And I started working on Rick's, Rick Roberts' songs, thinking that he was going to make a third solo record on AM Records. And then Mark Andes, who had you know, dropped out of the Los Angeles scene and moved to Colorado like so many people did back in those days, like Stephen Stills and Richie Fury and Joe Walsh and Dan Fogelberg and, and Chris Hillman and all these great L.A. guys that Mark knew back in the day. You know, a lot of them moved to the mountains above Boulder, Colorado. So when when Mark got involved, it was we figured this is going to be a band. And then Rick said, I know this songwriter, singer, Larry Burnett, um, in, in Washington, D.C., and we should get him out here. And Rick had some tape. This was way before cassette tapes. So it must have been a reel-to-reel tape. But he played Mark and I the song Cinderella by Larry Burnett. And Mark and I just went, oh, my God, get him out here. So we had the four of us. We had a different drummer for the first month or so. And then... Michael Clark, uh, ex-drummer from the Birds and the Flying Breeder Brothers, came in and became in the band. And then David came in to make our first record with. The point that I want to make is we had two great singer-songwriters that were very prolific. And really, from our first day of rehearsal to be a new band, whatever it was going to be called, it ended up being called Firefall, we had 20 to 25 original songs to play on our first day of practice. And Mark and I got to play on Livin' Ain't Livin' and Cinderella and, and uh, all these great Mexico and all these great songs on our first day of friggin' practice. And the most amazing thing about this band, which I look back on and I think everything, good and bad, was faded to be. You know, I was fated to meet Rick Roberts in New York City when I was with Graham and Amy Lou. And, you know, and Mark was fated to come to the, you know, kind of stumble in our rehearsal and say, hey, you know, we didn't have to try to sound like a band or try to find a sound. How does Firefall sound? When the 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 guts of the band, which was Michael Clark at, uh, on drums and Mark Andes on bass, two amazing players, Add me, a really good lead player on guitar. Add David, all the multi-instrumentalists. Every song we worked out of Rick and Larry's sounded like Firefall. And we didn't have to try to sound like anything. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What, I, what I'd like to add to that conversation is that Chris Hillman actually played an important role in this whole thing. Because I, I met Jock and Rick through playing with in Chris's band. And I think that that's where we first met Jock, right? We're playing with Chris. I think so. Yeah. And I think that at that point we realized, well, they're here, uh, 
Mark's here. Maybe um, he would like to be involved in Rick's new solo. He, she had just released She Is a Song, was his uh, first uh, solo record. And we were thinking, well, we're going to maybe do Rick's solo record. So we, but I think the uh, genesis of, of the, the idea that, that the three, Jock, Rick, and Mark could be start a band was in that initial experience with playing with Hellman because there was a there it, it gelled somehow and made we made Chris sound good you know what I mean? Well, I, I I'm glad you brought up Larry because um, I always I contend that listening to those early albums the flow of those records is so good because it's roughly an alternate you know from a Rick song to a Larry song. And it makes the flow, the, the listening experience of it so much more interesting than, you know, 10 songs of all the same. It's really nice up and down, you know, gets a little darker and bluesier and then back to the brighter, poppier stuff. It's really cool. And I am so lucky because there's hundreds of thousands of really good, great guitar players out there, lead guitar players. And I happened to run into Rick Roberts. And I've told Rick, I said, Rick, I was born to play on your song, Mexico, and some of your songs. I mean, that was, that's me. That's Tom's favorite uh, song of yours, by the way. Oh, yeah? <laughs> mentioning that's, that's Mexico, great. and I can yeah. tell. <laughs> <laughs> Mexico. When we ended up having all of Rick Roberts' great songs, uh, original songs and all of Larry Burnett's individual great songs. Rick was a kind of, he thought commercially whole, the whole time when he was writing a song, like just remember, I love you. He was thinking about getting girls in their twenties to call radio stations so that we would be, you know, he would have a hit record. Always goes back to girls. Yeah. yeah always go back to girls. <laughs> on that kind of stuff. Larry from Washington, D.C., and I watched him because Larry and I lived together for a few years early in Firefall. When he would write a song, it would be like a purging of his soul. Mm. And it'd be like, and there it was. And, you know, Larry didn't really think about whether it would be commercial, whatever that means. You know, and, and every year, every decade, that's a different term. Yeah. But to have in Firefall, so we had Rick Roberts's light ballad love songs all trying to be commercial yeah. and then his harder side like so long or mexico where he was a rocking guy and then interspersed with larry burnett's softer songs you know of larry's variety and then his harder you know you know emotional songs we when you put those two repertoires together i mean it was like a playground for mark and i yeah i mean God, to play music on a song like Cinderella and then turn around and play on Mexico, you know, it was it was great. So whose song was Dolphin's Lullaby? Because we featured that one on one of our Buried Treasures segments. Whose song was that? It's a Rick song. Okay. All right. Love that. The, the tempo changes on that. Love yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So, Tom, you were going to... Well, I was, I was going to say we should talk about the new record. If you guys... Well, I have a quick question before we get there. Yeah, go I'm for it. to know. I'm dying to know about uh, Break of Dawn 1982. So apparently David wasn't with you and you got David Sanborn to play. And I just want to know, even if we edit this out, I want to know how that came about. Because I'm a huge Sanborn fan. Have been since as far as I can remember. He, he's, he might be the greatest. Yeah. You know, yeah. Of all those alto sax players. 
and just the nicest guy ever. One by one, the original guys in the band left the band. Mark was actually first to go. And when the dust settled, you know, the way things were set up, you know, I kind of could keep it going if I wanted to. And I kept thinking, these songs are too good. Yeah. And I thought about and was encouraged by Ron and Howard Albert, the producers, to kind of reform Firefall. And hey, if we could get Rick Roberts to come in, and even though he's not in the band, if he could sing a little bit and we could put his name on the record, great. Well, let's see, David's not in the band anymore. They said, hey, let's get David Sanborn to come in. That's great. It'll be a, you know, and we kind of stacked that Break of Dawn album, which was a brand new band with really only me from the original band, even though Rick sang on a few songs and I think, Mark, you might have even played on one song, and, and David might have too, but David Sanborn came in as a session guy because we wanted to keep our saxophone-heavy kind of thing going too. Yeah. And it was amazing meeting David Sanborn and uh, having him play on our record. So that's very good. That's really that cool. story. I enjoy really that cool. one. Yeah. Cool. Go ahead, Tom. Well, we're, we're going to come back to Mexico when we talk about the new record, which is Comet. Uh, again, out December 11th. And um, I'm curious, because you mentioned that it was the last uh, studio recording album that you guys put out was, what, 1995, something around there? You know, I've been through a lot of incarnations of different players, and I'm so, so thrilled and happy to have the great Mark Andes and David Muse in our touring band, if we ever tour again. And uh, it's just so great to have that. But you know, um, we've been playing, honestly, in the 80s and 90s when Firefall goes out and plays, you know, big festivals or with four or five other uh, yacht rock type of bands, which we do that a lot. You know, we've been playing the same 45-minute set for about 25 years, you know, and, and the reason why is because people expect to hear all those songs that they're familiar with, with Firefall and all that, and... Um, it just seemed like it had been so long that it might be nice to record a new album and and have new songs for people to play. And it kind of started a few years ago when we were playing um, Spirits, Nature's Way, and even encoring with I Got a Line on You in our Firefall set, kind of in honor to Mark who's been a rock star for, you know, 45, 50 years. I mean, it's amazing, Mark, your career. And it's just, you know, and when we started playing Nature's Way, it sounded great. All of our crowd was really relating to it because that was a, uh, that was a huge uh, anthem kind of song for the end of the hippie movement and the environmental movement of nature's way and what a great song and our hats off to randy california who was fantastic and interestingly enough with this new album so it kind of started with us working out with uh, working out nature's way which included timothy b schmidt and john mcphee is that correct that's right and i was just going to say um timothy b schmidt back in 1977 sang a lot of the background vocal parts on just remember i love you okay and when we were recording and and performing nature's way 
a few years ago, Mark ran into Timothy B. Schmidt and asked him if he would graciously consent to be in our record. And he jumped at it because he told us when we were, <laughs> this is a great little story. We were at the, uh, the Colorado Music Hall of Fame induction of 2015. That was the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, wow. Poco. And Timothy B. Schmidt was allowed to come and play with Poco. Yeah. Um, you know, Randy Meisner was, you know, in Poco too. Firefall, and also Stephen Stills and Manassas, which was great wow. for Chris Hillman's, you know, uh, uh, deal. And b- backstage at that theater, Timothy B. Schmidt, and we were all taking pictures and hanging, and, and Mark and Timothy knew each other, but Timothy told Mark, you were my hero, man, in spirit. You were my hero. I lived in Sacramento, and I was in high school, and I would drive anywhere in California to see you guys play. Wow. Wow, that's cool. And I have to interject also that when I asked Timothy if he would uh, want to uh, sing with me on Nature's Way, it was it was really to, to kind of uh, honor Randy, and, uh, and, and, and John McPhee kind of fell into that. And, and, and I also want to clarify from my from my perspective, we, when we started recording this uh, these songs, and it, that included Nature's Way, it, there was really no al- band, album uh, planned out. We were going to do a handful of songs and uh, release them, maybe, maybe uh, three or five at a time on a CD, and, and then maybe collect uh, uh, maybe fifteen songs and make a best of, trying to to create a merchandise and it's developed into this long process where this record took almost four years from the time we cut uh nature's way till the time we finished up this record which uh, really didn't have uh it, we weren't clear-eyed about how this record was going to turn out when we started we didn't really know and it was kind of an organic process and today man today is the day that we put out uh our next single a song called way back when mm-hmm. and uh a, a really great video that my son jamie crow bartley did and way back when is a loving look back into the great music of the 60s that mark and i grew up on and in fact mark was part of yeah and mark you do a really cool like uh spoken intro in the video to the song that talks through the concept behind the song. So could you just give us a little taste of that? Well, I, I, I sort of um, riffed <clears throat> Jamie and I discussed how my, the, the spoken word intro should play out. And we just kind of had, had an idea and I just thought I'd put it in context with how similar what was going on in this country now, it was it was very similar to the '60s, really, and there were um, very very uh, highly charged issues. And um, I just wanted <clears throat> to strike a contrast with and in similarities with the, that time frame and now. So that was the, that was the idea. Yeah, and the song itself takes the listener through the decades, right? And who some of the icons were musically and historically. Different decades, different years of the 60s. It's like 65, 67, or what were the years that you referenced? And 69. And you know how I wrote that? Once I had an idea what the chorus should be, way back when we, um, I went, now I knew that it was either going to be even years or odd years. And, you know, and 64 would have been the first year of the Beatles. 
and the 65 would be the second one. And I wanted to include the birds, which, and they didn't really get happening until 1965. So in my first verse, it's the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the birds, and Bob Dylan. For the other two verses, which interestingly on uh, 67 and 69, I Googled the top 100 songs from 1965, you know, and there was like, or 1967, sorry. And Aretha, wow, oh my God, the Young Rascals, you know, and then 69, oh, Crosby, Stills and Nash, and Led Zeppelin. So when I was trying to write the verses and the guy singing the song is, he's with his girlfriend, Mary, and, and they're going through the 60s together and they realize that it was the best times of their lives. I really wanted that to be a pictorial of, you know, some of, you know, Aretha and Marvin Gaye and, and uh, you know, and Give Me Some Lovin' and, and Creedence Clearwater because that was some of the best rock music ever written or performed. The video captures it really well, too. The images against what you're singing about is really great. Yeah, and another show. So we got to go back to Mexico because, you know, as John <laughs> revealed, it's one of my favorite tunes of yours. Uh, just love the groove. And then, so this record comes out and there's a song called A New Mexico on it. And I'm like, all right, I got to hear this right away. And I play it. And it sounds like Mexico. So what is the story here? I just love that this is sort of had this revival. Tell us tell us how that came about. That one's easy. And, and you know, and, and Mark can come, jump in anytime. But for me, it had been 20 years since we put out a Firefall record. And I figured that at least half of the record needed to kind of sound like Firefall. You know, because if you had 10 songs that didn't sound like the old Firefall records at all, they'd go, yeah, right. You know, and then if you had every song sound like Just Remember I Love You, people are going, wow, they haven't evolved at all, have yeah, they? right. You know, so I knew that we needed four or five songs that really sounded like the band. You know, and at one point I kind of just said, I need to write a new Mexico. You know, I, w I need to write Mexico again, change it up, have it doff our hat to Rick Roberts and everything. And then finally it kind of dawned on me, New Mexico or a new Mexico. So I wrote a song similar to Rick's song and definitely, you know, with our hats off to Rick's wonderful song, Mexico, which today is still some people's favorite song we we ever did and uh you know so i, I thought hey let's put a new mexico on the record oh, love it it's awesome it's great so wait till people hear it i mean they will instantly recognize if they're familiar with mexico they'll instantly recognize it the the feel it's, it's very cool very clever too with a new mexico rick by the way rick roberts thought it was funny when i told him well i wrote a new song that kind of copped your whole thing <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he laughed and, you know. so what are the plans then going forward hopefully uh, uh pandemic passes eventually and you get back to touring and playing is that the the long-term goal or well for as long as we can and you know, as, it, for, as long as everyone's health and uh, allows, but as long as we're functioning at, uh, at a high level, I, I think we're not going to go anywhere. Uh, we're not going to disappear or anything for a while. And we are really lucky and fortunate as, as a band. Uh, and it's because we've had hit records that still get played today on Yacht Rock Radio and a lot of radio that we get a tour a lot with bands like Poco and Pure Prairie League. Ambrosia, Orleans, Atlanta Rhythm Section. Um, we do gigs occasionally with America, you know. So a lot of the work that we were doing, and we had 
probably 30 or 35 shows that were canceled in the summer, you know, big shows, festivals, casinos, fairs and everything where we might be one of three or four acts that, you know, that were already sold out months before. So we're just hanging in there too. And, you know, and I, I have to say that, I mean, we're all hanging in there, the musicians, but when you think about, the road crews and the lighting techs and the people who drove the buses for all the national touring acts that can't tour now, you know, our industry has been pretty devastated. Yeah, very much. Well, my dream is for a two day yacht rock festival like Lollapalooza or Burning Man. And I, I will come and I will camp and I will hear all my favorite bands. <laughs> yeah. and it'll be Awesome. So uh, I'm hoping I'm not just dreaming there. So, well, this has been great, guys. We really enjoyed it. We're so glad to hear that you guys are still out recording. All right, so where can people go? Firefallofficial.com. Is that the website? Right. And um, we'll have everything up and running in a, a week or two. Again, our new record called Comet um, comes out on December 11th. Uh, you'll be able to pre-order it before then, but we're really excited about the full 10-song record because – we hope that what you guys were talking about earlier, that, you know, from listening to song two, three, four, five, that it all sounds like the same band and it goes from, you know, harder to softer and, you know, and, and that it goes real well. I, actually, when I, I didn't know whether to call the album Yosemite, which uh, the firefall that, you know, the firefall happened for, for so long and still two weeks every, every uh, year in February, uh, the setting sun illuminates horsetail falls and that's the firefall that everybody thinks, you know, or the name Comet, but the name Comet really came from our first album cover, you know, with the blue cover with the comet over the lake. And uh, that's the same kind of thing about New Mexico and Mexico. I wanted people to be able to have uh, something tangible to go back 30 years to the past. I love the title. Yeah. I love Comet. love the title. I, we've seen the album art. It looks definitely looks like vintage Firefall. So everything about the record, so it does work as a record. It flows really well. So I'm excited for people to hear it. So thanks again, Jack Bartley, Mark Andes. We really appreciate it. And good luck with everything. Thanks, Tom. Thank you very much. Way back when we didn't know When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, we can't let any episode, interview or not, end without a lightning round because we committed to that from the very beginning and we're going to remain committed to that for as long as we do this. So we're going to do a lightning round. Lightning round it is. We're going to start with the, uh, the yacht or not question. And I am going to throw that one into your lap first. Yes, well, this one came up, This not this song, but this artist came up uh, in the Yacht Rock Facebook group this week. So uh, artist is Elton John. What? Yeah, yacht Rock, yeah, what? Yeah, yeah, what? Right. However, before you answer, here's the song, Give Me the Love. Give me the love, give me the love, give me the key. 
I was going to stop you as soon as you said Elton John because I thought I was going to stop myself. I thought it would be impossible, but uh, listening to that, 1980, it's got uh, the groove. It's got the call and answer girls. It's got the horns. I can't say no to that. That is on the yacht. Yeah. So by George, he's done it somehow. It is. But yes, Elton John is on the yacht with that song. Great. What do you got? This is 1977, and uh, one of your favorites, England Dan, John Ford Coley. Yacht. Oh, wait. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's still worth a listen. So this is from 1977, as I said, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive album. So not necessarily their would be considered heyday, but it was written by Randy Goodrum, mm. Jeff Percaro, Lee Sklar, Greg Fillingame, G-A-M-E, that's how, not Fillingames, it was credited as Greg Fillingame, and Richie Zito on guitar, who became a big rock producer in the 80s. He, you know, worked with Hart, Eddie Money, Cheap Trick, Motels, Tony Basil, blah, 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 blah. But the song is called Broken Hearted Me. But I don't think time is gone to hear this broken well, you mentioned that personnel, and you almost don't need to listen to it to call it Yacht Rock. Right. Um, you say it's John Ford Coley and England Dan, and I at that point, I don't even care if it's Yacht Rock anymore because I just love it. So um, because of all that, I'm going to give it a yacht. It, it's a little ballady, but it's it's good. It's thumbs up for me, too. Yeah. I love those guys, and uh, that's a good tune. So, all right. So shall we go to Buried Treasures? Do you have something ready? Yeah, I discovered a really interesting buried treasure. You know the the fan I am of Jay Graydon, and I think it's a little while ago that he put this out, but he kind of dug deep into some of his old demos and recordings and things and tried to uh, sort of polish them up, remix the ones he could, remastered the ones that he couldn't, put out this album that uh, is called, um, what is it, 70s to Present, I think is what it's called. And one of the songs I knew that he wasn't able to remix, but did a nice remastering job of, it was uh, something written by Jay Graydon, Dave Foster, and Mark Jordan. Mark Jordan sings the vocal on it, and it was just a demo. So this is like a one-off vocal from Mark Jordan. Um, but it's Percaro on drums, David Hungate on bass, you know, all, all the cats. And this song is called Secret Love. Secret Love. To me, it sounds a lot like uh, the Mark Jordan Blue Desert stuff, which would make sense with Jay Green producing. Yeah, I agree. Man, that's a pretty good find, though, because that's pretty buried. Yeah. You're pulling out demos? I know. It doesn't sound yeah. too much like a demo. It's pretty. It's it pretty does good. not. Yeah. yeah. I, I actually, that sounds really, that could be off Blue Desert. So that's a really good one. What's your buried treasure? Um, a little more obvious, not as buried, but I'm, you know, in the interest of going back full circle, like we did with uh, having Firefall on in a callback to episode one, episode two, we talked about variations on a theme. We were going into some of the subgenres, one of which being, we called it Yacht R&B, but maybe it's Yacht Soul. And we were talking through some of the R&B groups like the Commodores and Earth, Wind and Fire that fall into Yacht. And I asked you, I said, what about Cool in the Game? Do they have anything? Mm -hmm. And you rifled off a tune that I recognized by title but couldn't hear it in my head at the time. And it deserves going back to because it's so good and it's so underplayed. And this is Cool in the Gang, Too Hot. Oh, it's too hot, too hot, too hot lady. That's a perfect pick. Produced by, I believe that uh, was produced by Yumir Diodato, who has some elements in the yacht jazz. So it makes sense uh, that they would have that texture. Love that song. 
Okay, so I'm going to hit you with an off-the-map, somewhat um, episode-specific, because mm-hmm. to me, this band, they kind of get regarded as a jam band, but to me, they're like a throwback of the late 70s type of band. The artist is My Morning Jacket. Um, and they have a lot of different kind of sounds. Wow. They do sometimes sound like a, a hippie sort of jam band. Other times, I swear they're channeling Kansas. Um, but they have a new song out this year called feel you that I think just has some vibe to it, but check it out. That's a pretty nice lush sound. And uh, it's got some nice strings, which I know a lot of people don't uh, like in the yacht so much, but I got the nice uh, lead guitar happening in my right ear. That's really nice. And I'm, I'm not suggesting that it is got obviously off right. the map, but there's something about the vibe and there's some good lead work in it. And I just feel like it fits nicely into a playlist that has a lot of yacht and yacht adjacent stuff. So, and I do like the band and I think they should be more wild, wildly acclaimed. So what do you have for off the map, young man? Well, I went full on um, artist specific based on our episode. And I have another Firefall song that uh, I know isn't yacht. Um, it's got a little bit of a bouncy reggae feel to it. So maybe some people could uh, consider it in a buried treasure, but I'm going to go more off the map on this one. And this is from the Elon album, 1978. It's got some classic flute bits in it too. And this one is called Sweet Anne. Yeah, I remember listening to that this week because I was immersing myself in Firefall and that tune stuck out at me because it had a sort of a unique groove. Yeah. So that's, that is really good. I don't even know how far off the map it is, but I'm glad you, I just wanted to get it in there somehow. So yeah, exactly. Well, this was very good. And I'm really thankful that Firefall was able to uh, join us. Make sure you check out their new record, which drops December 11th. It's called Comet. Check out their videos on YouTube now. Um, and uh, we will link to all of this in the show notes. You can find us at YachtRockPodcast.com or on Facebook and Twitter. Um, what else? Ahoy polloi. I'm staying with it, letting my heart take me there.